Hey, City of Champion listeners. It has been way too long since the last episode, and I hope everyone out there is staying healthy and happy since we've last been together. I've really missed recording these podcast episodes and getting your feedback on the great guests that I'm able to talk to. Uh, Today's episode will be number 98, and as I near the century mark, I've been reflecting on where to go from here. I have a few ideas percolating, so make sure to keep your eyes open for what's ahead. Today, I am lucky to be sitting down with two great guys who are both long-standing members of the Edmonton community and have dedicated a large part of their lives to serving and protecting others. Chris Hayden is a 26-year vet of the Edmonton Police Service. In his time with EPS, Chris spent years specializing in surveillance, armed robbery, crisis negotiation, and commanding the riot troop. Chris was also an original member of Police Air One, where he was the aerial surveillance commander, essentially quarterbacking police operations from the sky. After retiring from the force, Chris spent nearly a decade as the Global News Helicopters traffic reporter, recording over 14,000 flight hours in the Edmonton sky. Doug Workman is a 23-year vet of the RCMP, where he specialized as an investigator for major crimes and homicide, money laundering, hostage and crisis negotiating, and served as the major incident commander. He was also the international police trainer seconded to the United States Department of Justice, the RCMP National Incident Commander Coordinator, and has investigative and training experience across Canada, the United States, the Caribbean, South America, and the United Kingdom. After retiring from the force, Doug spent over a decade working corporate security with Air Canada, CanPro Global Security, and the Canadian Air Transport Security Authority. In 2016, Chris and Doug founded Haywork Secure Driving Service, a secure driving and executive protection service delivered by experienced and highly trained former law enforcement, military, and security professionals. Their clients, whom Chris and Doug are excellent at keeping nameless, despite my prying, run the gamut of government officials, executives, high net worth individuals, entertainers, and professional sports figures, whom we all love here in Edmonton. I've known Chris and Doug for several years now, but this recording is really the first time I've had the pleasure of sitting down to chat with them while they were off duty. Both of them have extensive interview experience in their law enforcement background, so it was fun to turn the tables on them and subject them to questioning for once. I hope you all enjoy my conversation with Chris Hayden and Doug Workman. Chris and Doug, thanks for joining me on the podcast. My first one in over a year, so excuse the rust. Um, you can call it out if you feel necessary. Thanks for having us. Hey, no, no, anytime, anytime. My pleasure. Um, I've been thinking about you guys for a while, ever since I first met you, having you on the podcast, because you've probably got the coolest job out of anyone I've, I've met in a long time. Um, I'll do a little background on you both, uh, sort of your resume when I do the intro, so you don't need to get too detailed into that, but um, yeah, great to have you guys on the City of Champions podcast. Thanks, Shane. Great to be here. Thanks, Shane. <laughs> I, it's kind of a privilege, to be honest with you. It's my, a privilege, okay. My, uh, my daughter is pretty tickled to hear that her dad's on a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're welcome for the style points then, I guess. Um, I want to start with... Like, you guys have incredible banter between the two of you. How long have you guys known each other? Um, where'd you first meet? What's the story there? Well, I hate to do this, but I'm going to let Doug tell that story because he set it all up a long time ago in Ottawa. 
So Chris and I did not know each other prior to a training session uh, that we went on at the uh, Canadian Police College in Ottawa, Shane. It was a hostage negotiator, crisis negotiator course. And uh, I knew there was an Evan Police member on the course, but I was away on another trip somewhere else doing something else. And I met the, uh, the course candidates in Ottawa on a Sunday night. And I saw Chris's name on the syllabus, and I thought, oh, there's Chris from Evan Police. That's cool. Uh, looking forward to meeting him, and, uh, you know, one thing leads to another, and, and we just became great friends. But the night before the course, I'd been there many times. I knew how it was all laid out, that the uh, instructors had laid out the classroom in advance. So I was all assigned seating, and it was all set up. So I went into the classroom around midnight on Sunday night just to scope it all out, do a little intel, mm -hmm. and there I am sitting right at the front, which I don't like to do. <laughs> And Chris is in the back. Mm -hmm. So I just switch it all around. <laughs> and Monday morning, Chris walks in. I, I'm watching him. And he looks, yeah, oh, man, I'm in the front row. That's terrible. And I'm just, I'm back in the back row. I can't breathe. I'm laughing so hard. So fast forward, I know they're going to elect a, cl a class president to look after a lot of the admin stuff for the two-week course. So I had to set up an instructor in advance that Chris was going to be nominated. He didn't know. He's just sitting there. And they asked for a volunteer. I nominate Chris. There's about four guys that second it and third it and fourth it. Suddenly he's a class president. He doesn't know what's going on. He's completely lost. <laughs> so that was my indoctrination to Chris. And that was in 19, what, Chris? I hate to date it here a little bit, but uh, probably early 90s. It was early 90s, yeah. So Chris and I spent the two weeks on the hostage negotiator course and became friends from that point on. Now, our career paths took different uh, streams, if you will. I went on to different places, but we always kept in touch. And then we ultimately ended up back in Edmonton together, and uh, one thing led to another, and we both retired from the police uh, police careers and moved into the private sectors. Anything to add to that one? Well, how, how is it from your perspective, Chris? Well, okay, yes. my perspective is that I walk into that classroom that morning, one, front row, no, not happening. Two, I went and visited the washroom, come back and find out I'm the class president. <laughs> And I don't know what your editing will include. I said, what's this bullshit? Yeah. And I was the class president. So I'm stuck collecting all the monies for the wrap-up banquet after a two-week course. And there's guys from agencies all across Canada uh, on this. And you become very close because it's pretty intense training and very, very rewarding training. But all of a sudden, by the end of it, I turned out to be, to be probably one of the best class presidents they ever had. I'll yeah, I don't it. doubt it. I'll second that. There you go. Number but one. as Doug said, as the years progressed, we'd run into each other. Yeah. And it was like we never, ever separated. Mm -hmm. And we did a couple of major exercises in training as negotiators. And huge, one of the biggest events probably was at the Edmonton International Airport, where there were 500 police members involved in this thing with an aircraft hostage taking. And it was a really, really big event. And I was part of the negotiating team, and Doug was part of a national training team for mm -hmm. the RCMP. So again, this is how we would meet up with each other. And we both retired from the agencies, and we run into each other, and we start doing these special events for OEG. So tremendous amount of work, but tremendously rewarding. That that seems like kind of police law enforcement work in general. How is it that, that both of you guys decided to pursue that as a career? I myself, originally when I was going to high school in, in Ontario, I wanted to join the Air Force. But because my main course at school was partying, it took a different path and I didn't quite make it to trig and algebra and everything like that. 
in grade 13. Was, in was that like a Top Gun thing? You're like, oh, I could be badass and have a great time? Well, I didn't know at that age that I was a bit of an adrenaline junk. Yeah. Right? So that, I think that's why I wanted to fly. Plus, my dad was in the Air Force in the Second World War. So that was my career path. That washed out. Oh, what the hell? I'll try being a cop. Mm-hmm. And in Ontario, back in the day, this long ago, uh, you had to be 5'10". And I was too short. To be, join the Air Force? To join the police, any police oh. agency. So I ended up, there was an article in the Toronto Star that the Edmonton Police Department were looking for recruits. I put my application in. They flew me out in May long weekend for training. Three days of, of uh, testing. Started on July 3rd. So you moved to Edmonton because you're high. Yeah. <laughs> that's unreal. Yeah. I guess that's <laughs> a, a great way to put it. I moved to Edmonton because of my height. And, and so the training, and this is how times have changed. Mm-hmm. I started on July 3rd, they gave me a uniform, a firearm, put me in the paddy wagon, and I took calls for two weeks before I even had training, so I got to know the the city. (laughs) But yet I was going to calls. Right, so in like a ride-along capacity, or you were... I'm in the wagon by myself. (laughs) That was my indoctrination. And then I I was called a nine-week wonder. Back then, Mm -hmm. the training was nine weeks. You're in class, nine weeks, get out, start taking calls. Yeah. That's how it was. And it was just... A never-ending cycle and the majority of the guys were from Ontario going through the training so when did you first get your gun <laughs> well, part of the nine-week training a part of the nine-week yeah. training and, and had, had you had fi- five five pounds on my hip had you had firearms experience in that before I had because I went to a community college in Ontario mm-hmm. and we actually had a firing range in the basement so oh. we pounded off a few rounds with a old revolver down there so but that was the extent of my handgun training <laughs> that's unreal yeah Boom! You're in the you're in the police force. Congratulations! Now start taking calls. Yeah, take down bad guys. Yeah, exactly. And Doug, how about you? What, what's your genesis story? So mine goes back to Stratford, Ontario, uh, Shane, uh, where I grew up, and, and uh, I had an uncle on the Stratford Police Department, and he was at that time. And my memory is that he was a detective, uh, uh, homicide, major crimes kind of a guy, and he used to drop by our house for uh, for lunch once in a while, and he, and he carried this cool little snub-nosed revolver in a shoulder holster. He, he drove a really cool little unmarked car. Serpico style. Correct. Yeah. He wore a three-piece suit, tailored suit. Cool. He, and he, this guy, looked, he was sharp, right? Yeah. And his name was Bob, Uncle Bob. And I, that's where the kind of the genesis started, where the seed was planted. And I went off to university, and I was uh, in second year of a business degree at Wilfrid Laurier in, in Waterloo, Ontario. And in our weekly newspaper, there was a full-page ad at the back of the uh, one section for the Mounted Police looking for recruits to hire across Canada. So I read this ad. They were actually targeting university graduates. I thought, wow, this is kind of all lining up. This is cool. My uncle gave me the advice to join the RCMP. Here's this full-page ad, so I applied. And back in my day, Shane, um, there was a time where you could, as a British subject, you could join the RCMP as either as a British subject or a Canadian citizen. And I was born in Scotland. But they changed it the year before I applied, so I couldn't apply. They wouldn't process my application because I wasn't a, a Canadian. Oh, you're still... Uh... So I was deferred for two years because <laughs> it took me two years to get into a citizenship court, to get an appointment to become a Canadian. Yeah. So I, I walked into the courtroom uh, two years later. The judge said, why are you here, sir? I said, I want to be that guy. And there was a Marcy and P fell in Red Surge, you know, as a ceremonial piece and a piece of, uh, you know, color, if you will, in the, in the courtroom. And I said, I want to be that guy. And mm-hmm. she looked at me and she laughed and said, no problem, you're, you're, you're a Canadian citizen. Mm-hmm. Congratulations. 
And then as I was leaving the courtroom, she said, Mr. Workman, just before you go, one quick question. What's the capital of Canada? I said, Toronto, Your Honor. <laughs> and she laughed and she said, get out of here. So that was my indoctrination to become a Canadian citizen. And then a few months later, I'm on a police uh, member. So that's where it all started in Stratford, Ontario, of all places. So we, we talked about this before we started recording, but kind of what are, what are the general nuances between RCMP and EPS? Because you see both around town, obviously. Um, but for, uh, you know, a neophyte like myself, I, I didn't quite know what the difference was. How would you guys describe it? Well, I think the best way to describe it is Edmonton police are a municipal police service. Mm -hmm. So they look after the city of Edmonton proper. RCMP, federal agency. And so if you take into consideration Edmonton, then there's Sugar Park, St. Albert, and Fort Saskatchewan, Leduc, all of them. Well, as we progressed in our careers, and I became a, a detective in major crimes with EPS, a lot of joint force operations, or JFOs we called them, where we worked with the mummies. And that's where we would run in and work with these guys. So even though it's a different uniform, back in the day, mm -hmm. it was all about catching the bad guy. Yeah. And so we'd have these JFOs, and we'd use the resources of the RCMP, the resources of the Edmund Police Service, and we'd go out and catch bad guys who were... Because they had caused so much problem, problems within the city of Edmonton and are so known, mm -hmm. they then branch out and do the surrounding areas. And that's when the agencies, the, the working relationship between the two, there is no definition. Mm -hmm. We're all cops. Mm -hmm. And we're all doing one thing is to protect the public and make sure that nobody gets hurt. And we loved what we did. And that's how we followed with our careers. Yeah, police work is police work. Right. At the end of the day, it's... Uh, the police work the RCMP does in, say, a bigger center such as Surrey currently, although that is, that is changing, uh, Burnaby, British Columbia, it's very similar policing, municipal policing to what the Edmonton Police are doing. It's very similar mandates, similar concerns, similar challenges. Um, the one difference with the RCMP, there's pros and cons to both, and uh, um, there's a kind of a mandate difference, Chris, you would agree, like there's, uh, there's a federal mandate, a provincial mandate, international mandate there's different mandates but it's police work mm -hmm. it's all police work um, I brought this plaque as you know Shane just to, just to kind of exemplify what what can be accomplished um, I know what this is audio but uh, this is one of the most probably the plaque I'm most proud of in my career it was given to me by the Edmonton Police uh, in appreciation for some of the work we did together over a period of 15 years this is when I left Edmonton to go to Ottawa this meant a lot to me they presented to me at a farewell party it just exemplifies what can be accomplished if, uh, if we work together. Mm -hmm. Because we, we're following the same bad guys, Chris, for lack of a better term, just to boil it right down to brass tacks. We're following and working on the same bad guys uh, with the same mandate, and that was to uh, keep communities safe. And uh, this plaque means a lot. So That's very cool. Yeah, I'll so. take a picture of you with that, and we'll, <laughs> okay. we'll post it for the, for the listeners to see. Okay, thanks. Um, so as far as the training goes, there's quite a bit of overlap. Like, oh, yeah. are, there, are there nuances in the culture? Like... You know, it's just... <laughs> There's <laughs> a lot of nuances. Dugs not in his okay, head. I'll, so because we're municipal, yeah. our decisions made locally. Yeah. With the RCMP, if it was a major event or a major file or something like that, of course, they're at the discretion of pretty well Ottawa for majors, and that delayed things getting done. Mm -hmm. But because we are all on the same page and we wanted to get the bad guy, did we sometimes ask for forgiveness and make our own decisions without getting all the paperwork? Yeah, we did it. Right. But again, we had one objective, mm -hmm. to prevent crime from continuing. And as we proceeded, like when I was in robbery section, when I was in surveillance detail, when I was in major crimes, it was always a matter of 
catching the bad guys, catching the bad guys. And it, we all got to know each other very, very well. Mm-hmm. And that we'd say, well, we're going to bring the Mounties in. And next thing you know, and it's almost like a, a complete unit of two different agencies that just work hand in hand together. So, And we're all better for it, I suppose. I, I think so. I mean, it's, it's, it's all about, there's no boundaries in, in terms of, you know, solving crime. There's no boundaries. Mm-hmm. It, these issues permeate across, you know, city borders, provincial borders, international borders. So it's all about trying to get on the same page and working towards a common ground. There are cultural, subtle cultural differences, but at the end of the day, like anything else in this in life, Shane, there's pros and cons to both, right? Mm-hmm. There's, a, there's a huge upside to joining the Mounted Police and a huge upside, upside to joining the Evan Police. There's all kinds of pros and cons to both agencies. Both agencies offer some remarkable career, career opportunities and challenges and specializations. If you get a good grounding and a good foundation, you can specialize, you can become mm-hmm. a polygraph, uh, operator, you can become a major crimes detective, you can become a surveillance specialist, you can become a money laundering specialist, you can become, uh, it just goes on and on and on, Chris. There's all kinds of career opportunities. You were in robbery for many years as a detective, right? And surveillance. Yeah. And Air One. Yeah. That's and, right. And so with, with here's what I think if I want to sum up police work, yeah. is, and this, I'm going to take this into the private sector after we both pulled the pin is when you retire in the private sector, any industry, any company that you go to, they are flabbergasted that cops make decisions so quickly because we are Mm -hmm. solution-based. These are our information, this is what we're gonna do, boom, you come up with an answer. And the the public or the private industry go, well, what about committee? What do you need committee for? These are our facts, (laughs) this is what we're gonna do. And they they just can't comprehend like that. And that's why you see retired police officers throughout any industry mm-hmm. within North America. They excel because they just, they cut through the bullshit and they get your answers. Right. You never let perfection get in the way of progress no, too, I'm sure, no. right? We're, we're solution driven. Mm-hmm. What's the quickest solution? How quick can we get this done? Would would uh, would experiences like that kind of be a, a mark on the positive side of a ledger for doing like mandatory military service in a country? Like I, I I've met friends in in uh, Finland who they all have to do a year and, and yeah. some in Israel as well and like not that I want to go back and serve a year in the military but like it just if that accrues you uh, say a year post secondary or something I don't see how that could be a bad thing. Now I know like. You know, yeah. seem, it's not the same world it was back in the the mid twentieth century with right. world wars going on. Right. Um, but it seems like there'd be a lot of positives there. Well, I, I can just speak, you know, my own personal experience, Shane. I mean, I was a different person going coming out of the university, going into basic training in Regina, Saskatchewan, in the RCMP Depot, than I was coming out of after that six months. It just it changed me in so many ways, and uh, that training grounded me for the future career, gave me the basic grounding, if you will, for the future career challenges. And that's six months training. I always said, even if I quit at the, at the last day of that training and did something else, I would never, ever, ever regret taking that six months mm-hmm. training because it changed me in so many ways, just from an organizational standpoint, organizational skills, discipline, being reliable, teamwork, on and on. The skills are so transferable, right? So very similar to a military background. Um, I think it was a, for me, it was a great idea. I came out of university completely naive, like most undergraduate you come out of university you haven't got a clue what's going on in the world you yeah got a clue I grew, I grew up in Stratford Ontario it's the enclave in southern western Ontario of, of complete naivety right if you, if you weren't an actor and became a Shakespearean actor you you left town right mm-hmm. and uh, so I, I left Stratford and what kitchen while very naive and then I went through depot and it, it just changed me for the better in my opinion 
I grew up very fast, very fast. Yeah, well, it seems like the hardest experiences are typically the ones you learn the most from and grow the most, 100%, right? 100%. Yeah. I mean, I went from a university campus in Waterloo. Six months later, I'm in what I colloquially refer to as downtown Hobima. Yeah. I went from Waterloo, Kitchener, Waterloo, to Moscow, which is now Moscow Cheese. Um, a lot to learn fast. A lot to learn fast, not just as a cop. But from a cultural standpoint, mm-hmm. uh, you know, uh, there was a lot to take on, a lot to absorb. When you get transplanted into a completely different environment such as that, how how long does it take a full immersion until you start to feel a little bit more comfortable? Like before you start to like, okay, these things that rattled me at first aren't rattling me anymore. My, my rough guideline for that, Shane, that's a great question, is about a year. Mm-hmm. For me, it was about a year. Mm-hmm. It, once I had a year under my belt, I started to feel comfortable. I started to feel more confident in what I was doing. I started to feel more... Uh, more experienced, if you will, um, much more uh, uh, better equipped to deal with the challenges, right? After about a year, that's what the kind of the, the switch flipped for me at about a year. Yeah. That's just me personally, right? Mm-hmm. I'm sure everybody's different, but you, Chris? No, 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 it's true. One thing about police work is you develop this confidence, sometimes an overconfidence. Right. Because you can walk into a room of people and it's a complete cluster. You come in in uniform, everybody looks at you, and you take control. Yeah. It literally falls on your shoulders. And as Doug said, that first year, your rookie year, you're pretty shaky. Mm-hmm. But once you develop that confidence, you have no problem walking in that room saying, this is what we're going to do. Yeah. The one thing about that, Shane, is you learn fast, right? Because it comes at you pretty hot and heavy. Like mm-hmm. These experiences come at you pretty quick. Yeah, whether you're ready or not, you really. Can, right? You can pack a lot of real life, real drama into a 12-hour shift, right? You can pack a lot into a 12-hour shift where you start at 6 o'clock at night, you go home at seven o'clock the next morning. And you say, "Wow, what just happened?" Mm-hmm. You know, just twelve hours of just rock and roll, bang, 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 call to call to call, and some of the most tragic circumstances you can imagine that people aren't really wired or programmed to see. You're exposed to it over and over and over. And therein lies some of the occupational stress injuries and some of the PTSD issues that creep in. Just over, it's a steady diet of, of challenges, right? Mm-hmm. You get to see what you do, change. You get to see man's inhumanity to man face to face you get to taste it smell it see it mm-hmm. in reality it's not in a textbook it's not in a newspaper you're seeing it you're experiencing it and that that takes over time that, that does take its toll but you learn fast you learn fast how to cope i read a uh, i read a book on it's called on killing and it was about um just like uh like people in in wartime situations and they said that the highest rate of ptsd typically from from uh, veterans doesn't come from things um, that other people did to you it comes from things that you had to do to other people mm-hmm. right and it's well like stated. it's that realization that we've all got a light and a dark side in us and and what we're capable of right well stated. yeah I mean you don't know what you don't know right until you get into it and then you realize I mean you go to a couple of very tragic car accidents and you realize that how fragile people are and mm-hmm. how how fickle life really is, right? And and, and you, you start to get a new appreciation, renewed appreciation for what you've got and mm-hmm. the fact that you're still alive, you're still doing your thing. I think back to my time in uniform, Shane, and I say this many times, I, I like many, many of my colleagues, uh, are very fortunate to be here today with some of the stuff that we were exposed to, mm-hmm. right? And some of the, the tragedies that we're exposed to and some of the risks that we were exposed to. I have many colleagues that are on the... Uh, on the pillar down at the uh, legislature, uh, the memorial, Peace Officer Memorial, and many colleagues that are on the RCMP uh, memorial wall in Regina, Saskatchewan, um, and it's for the grace of God. So you're exposed to a lot fast, but mm-hmm. the one thing about it, Shane, it, it challenges it challenges you in a way that 
a lot, there's a lot of the stuff we do, I say this often, we do things that people see on TV or reading a novel or watching a movie. We're living it and breathing it, and it, it can be very, very exhilarating mm-hmm. in terms of testing you and pushing you to the max, right? It, it's, it can be a very enlightening experience. You learn what you're made of very quickly. Yeah, and I think people tend to forget that there's a difference between watching something on TV or on social media and actually being there in the moment with the physiological response right. of what's going. Right. It's easy to watch and say, oh, that officer should have acted differently or he should have done something yeah. differently. Like yeah. Anyone saying that probably hasn't yeah. been in that experience. Right? I, I use a sports analogy all the time, so which you can identify with. and I use this all the time. One of the things that really bothers me are armchair quarterbacks people that wax poetic from the comfort of their easy chair or behind their computer. I always say, and I do this all the time, I've done it for years, is you're not in a dressing room. Mm-hmm. You don't know, unless you're in a dressing room, you don't know really what's going on in terms of the game plan or which line is starting, which goaltender is starting, and what the decision-making was that a Dave Tippett is using to make those decisions and his coaching staff. You, if you're not in the room, you just don't know. So you're kind of ill-equipped to really have an informed opinion. Mm-hmm. You're kind of you're kind of guessing, really. You're really guessing as to what's going on. Why did Tippett start this guy instead of that guy? Mm-hmm. Right? Why is this guy in Bakersville and this guy's up here? There's a lot of stuff goes on behind the scenes, right? And unless you're in that room, I mean, I mean, I, I had the privilege of traveling with a sports team, a professional sports team, for about a three-month run, and I wasn't in the dressing room. Mm-hmm. I was as close to that team as I possibly could be on the plane, on the bus, in the hotels. I still didn't know what was going on because I wasn't in the room right. before the game, then the intermissions after the game. So it applies to police work too, Chris. Right? There's if you're unless you're in the room, you really, really don't know what's going on. Well, if you want to, if you want to take what we did in our careers to what policing is now, and mm-hmm. that was one of your questions, is simply this: we didn't have the scrutiny of being videotaped. Yeah, everyone, everyone's got a camera. Exactly. Everyone's got an axe to grind. And then they post that three-second clip of a yeah. cop taking somebody under arrest and broadcast, there's a police brutality again. Yeah, Doug and I will both completely agree with you. If you get arrested, it's not a pretty picture. Mm-hmm. But the number one job of that police officer is to take control of the situation. Mm-hmm. Taking control of the situation is putting somebody in handcuffs. Once you put in handcuffs, 99.9% of the time, it's resolved. Right. If the guy still wants to fight, force will be dealt with force. Mm-hmm. The as I used to say, your mouth will dictate how this is going to go. Yeah. I would say that to guys. If they wanted to go, we went. Mm-hmm. But once the I had them under control, the fight was over. Right. But nowadays, and it's a challenge for anybody who wants to get into law enforcement, is that you will be crucified mm-hmm. for doing what you have signed on to do. Yeah, and you know, undoubtedly, there's stuff that happens that that certainly deserves. Uh, repercussions, of right? Of course there is. But, 100%. but to, have, sure. to have a mass audience view a situation completely from an uninformed perspective and and then make decisions on how that, that person uh, operated, if they acted correctly, it just, it, again, it's like trying to fix... Uh, trying to fix a power play that you don't know anything about hockey it's like oh they should shoot more well i'll tell you we don't shoot from the point all the time because it gets blocked at 90 percent of the time yeah. right yeah it's a great analogy as well but again these armchair cardiacs or these people's on their basement suite at four o'clock in the morning all of a sudden an expert yeah in police tactics or an expert on dealing with difficult individuals mm-hmm. as we've said here uh for the past five minutes if you haven't walked that walk you have nothing to say yeah. Law enforcement, Shane, just by its very definition, law enforcement is a challenging vocation, a challenging career, mm-hmm. because you're, you're inevitably going to be dealing with conflict. You're going to be dealing with people that are in crises, people that are probably the lowest point in their lives. 
and that spills out very pretty seen sometimes, and it can get it can get it can become optically difficult to observe, right, Chris? And uh, and that's the challenge is to try and resort to your training, rely on your training, your experience, get the job done, and go home at night. And we talked about the long term effect, but if you're in that environment constantly, mm -hmm. it will wear you down mm -hmm. psychologically, physically, mentally, all of it, even spiritually. Mm -hmm. It's how you deal with it. PTSD is a real thing. I know for a fact I have PTSD. It's how you cope with it. I did, at my very early in my career, and it wasn't so much PTSD, my coping mechanism was alcohol. Mm -hmm. But I had somebody who said, you know what, you got a problem here, and I recognize I had it, and thankfully I've never had a drink since then. But for a lot of people, whether it be early stages of life, mid stages, or late stages, mm -hmm. still use that as their coping mechanism, and it catches up to you after. So what effective short and medium slash long-term uh, methods for dealing with things did you find, right? Like say say you get home at the end of a long 12-hour shitty shift where just tons of bad stuff happened yeah. and you had to witness it all, right? Yeah. What, what, do you do, what can you do in the interim to decompress from that effectively? And then the accumulation through time, what did you find? And this is, there's no right or wrong answer. It's just personally. For me, I solved the world's problems by running. I would go for a run. Okay. One. Not running away from the problem. No, no, no. <laughs> I, I would go for a run. Yeah. Because I would get rid of the shit yeah. as I'm running. Yeah. Think th stuff through and then go back and do it again the next day. Mm -hmm. But one thing, and this is something that my wife and I have had the discussion. If I was having a real bad day, I never shared it with her. My sanctuary was home. Interesting. Is that if it was a bad day involving kids or yeah. a homicide or a messy scene or something, Never share it with her because my job is to protect her from the shit that we see every day. Right. That's interesting. Doug, how about yourself? For me, my coping mechanisms early in my career, Shane, were athletics, sports, yeah. whether it be racquetball, squash, playing hockey, floor hockey, on and on. That was my sanctuary. Mm -hmm. And uh, and then friendships outside of the police career was important to me as well. Um, some of my closest friends were like the local pharmacist, the local barber. To, to, you know, just broaden the scope so you're not completely surrounded yeah. by, by that environment, right? Get a little have, different have, perspective yeah. every once in a while. And, you know, and one of my biggest um, um, saving graces, I arrived in with Alberta about the same time Wayne Gretzky arrived. Mm. So I enjoyed, like everyone else, the heyday of the 80s. Mm -hmm. So I was addicted to oiler hockey. Whether it be on TV, we had season tickets, we had friends with tickets. We'd always That was our one of our best escapes, mm -hmm. quite honestly, was hockey. And uh, watching hockey and being part of it, right? And uh, as a fan, and that was one of my biggest uh, saving graces was getting involved and in, in being a big, huge, long-time Edmonton Oilers fan. So the common theme seems to be almost just letting it go, right? 100%. It's not overanalyzing. It's not thinking what Correct. what could I have done better? How can I fix the world's problem? It's just like, hey, I did everything I could. Move on from it, right? Well, it's we talk about to do that. Sometimes we talk about that confidence. You're confident in the decisions you made at the time you were in that situation. If you second guess yourself, the next time you're in that situation, could be a second of an incident mm -hmm. or an instant that could create injury to either you or somebody else. Yeah. Don't second guess yourself. This is what we're going to do. You do it and you stick by it. If you're getting shit over it. Say la vie. Yeah. There's, a, there's an interesting theory of, uh, of memory from a psychological perspective, evolutionary psychology, that memory isn't actually meant to, to remember the past. All it's meant to do is, is take the lessons 
of things that went wrong and things that went right and, and reformulate that into a mental model to help you move forward more effectively in the future. Exactly. Right. right? Like it's, there's lots of people I, I listen to, oh, just regretful and I did this yeah. and I wish yeah. I had done this differently. Yes. Yes. There's, there's zero utility to ruminating on the past. Right? That's right. Lessons one, learned. One, yeah. of, one, of the, one of the areas, arenas that I used to learn the most was in court. Shane, if I made a mistake in an investigation or, or prosecuting or investigating an impaired driver, for instance, if I made a mistake, it would often come out in, in, under testimony, mm. under cross-examination by right. defense, right? Yeah. So they'd expose that mistake and maybe the charge was withdrawn or reduced or whatever, and you would make a mental note, well, I'll never do that again. Right. So that's what you're saying. We would learn from our past mistakes, but turn it into a constructive to make you a better investigator, a better policeman or woman down the road, right? Shit. Take those experiences. In that profession, it's like a mistake gets put on blast in front of a whole courtroom. It, it, it can be difficult. It can be difficult. Yeah. Especially when it becomes case law and you see it time <laughs> and time and time again. That was me. My yeah, bad. Exactly. <laughs> see Regina so and Stitchman, Stitchcomb? That's me right there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah there's, there's a lot of that that goes on as well. And but you, like you say, though, you, you, you pick up the pieces, you, you look for the silver linings and try and just try and improve, right? <laughs> police work is, uh, there's always, there's a million ways to get from A to B in police work. There's mm-hmm. a million ways to investigate a, a crime. It's just, you just have to get to the point where you're comfortable, you're relying on your experience, you understand the case law, you understand what the law allows and doesn't allow, and mm-hmm. then you go forward, right? And you learn that through the school of hard knocks, right? Yeah, it's it's pattern building, right? You're you right. Just, yeah. It's yeah, you, right. You, things that you have to think really hardly. I'm sure at the start right. of your career, sure. just become second nature. Just be like, like a golf swing, like a golf swing, muscle memory. I'm still working like, on that one, so I wouldn't so, know. So we all are. We all are. Even Dustin Johnson is. Yeah. <laughs> um, but you know what I'm saying? Like it's, it's muscle memory, and you learn as you go. Yeah. And police work is an inexact science. It's probably one of the most challenging professions out there to get it right every time. And it's very difficult to do that. So we talked about um, we talked about instances that are, you know, go viral on social media of bad police work or perceivingly bad police work. Um, it always blows me away how how good jobs or how um, like great things done by police aren't publicized to a, mm-hmm. to the same degree, to an equal degree and and mostly like not even covered at all, right? Right. Um, you know, have you guys been a part of things that you thought like, hey, shit, we did a bang up job, but it just, no one notices other than obviously internally. There's probably way too many instances to even talk about them. We'd be here all night, Shane, of those examples of those things happening to us where it becomes almost routine and mundane. Uh, the day-to-day stuff that you do is expected of you. It, it doesn't generate any headlines because it's so, it's so routine it's so matter of fact right it's part of who you are and you just kind of go with the flow a lot of things that happened to us in my experience down in Wetaskiwin was never reported on because mm-hmm. it was relatively isolated down in Wetaskiwin smaller town a lot of things never hit the uh, hit the, the the media that they they maybe would up here right mm-hmm. um, just by virtue of geography and other things but uh, yeah I mean it's an example there's a lot of examples of that shame where you just kind of muddle along do your thing and, and uh, if you know you did a good job at the end of the day and you got a pat in the back from the sergeant, you're good to go. That's all it took. I spent two years in charge of the media relationship for Edmund Police Service. So my job was to promote the Edmund Police. Mm-hmm. Nine times out of ten, the majority of the media only wanted the gory details. Yeah. Gore sells, right? Mm-hmm. If we had one of our guys who became the Kiwanis Member of the Year for all his volunteer work and everything like that, page three of the local paper. Right. wouldn't make the top 10 minutes of the 6 o'clock news broadcast. Mm-hmm. But if it was gory and it grabs the attention of the general public, that was story one. 
Mm-hmm. So that challenge of always trying to sell the positive of what the EPS was doing was a challenge. And yes, it was accepted at times, but it wasn't as sexy as a nasty story coming out of a, a police. Board. Yeah, and that's just kind of a, a problem with news in general, is, right? Yeah. We're, we're hardwired to, to be more attentive to negative things. Mm-hmm. You know, it's the last 20 years or so, I think like over half the world's population has been raised out of abject poverty. Right. Yeah, that doesn't make, that right. should be a headline every single day. 100 million people didn't starve to death today, right? Yeah. But it's like, oh, three were killed here. It's, we're just not programmed because I, I heard another, sorry, I'm a psycho, psychology geek, but I heard the reason why that is, why we're programmed to pay more attention to negative stuff. Because if you've got something that happens that's 10 out of 10 positive, that's the that's the top. That's as good as it can get. Mm-hmm. But if you have something that's a 10 out of 10 negative, you could then also die. So it's like the worst thing could happen to you and you could then also be dead. So that's why psychologically we're more in tune to the negative stuff because it has greater consequences. Which and makes and sense. if you look at the media side, and this is just before, if you look at Live PD, it was the number one show on A&E. It was what was keeping A&E alive. Mm-hmm. After George Floyd, they dropped that show the viewership of A&E dropped 45%. Right. The general public wants to see what the police do. Mm-hmm. But if it's fact it's it's something that's going to be derogatory or not pretty or anything like that, mm-hmm. they're going to step back saying, ooh, that's not right, but yet those shows thrive. Even to this day, anything police-related, you'll always have a huge following of people wanting to watch it. Because they, they I, again, that's my own personal opinion, I think anybody out there who follows those shows wanted to be a policeman one way or another. Interesting. They're part of that. Yeah. Either that or they're the criminal trying to learn how police operate, right? But, then, <laughs> but that was one of our challenges on the job, too. Yeah. Is the really good guys never ever caught. Interesting. So what would make a, a good criminal? Honestly, when I, I did six years in armed robbery section, yeah. the guy who would do one robbery, get a good score, yeah. not tell anybody about it, and just disappeared. That's a good criminal. That's the guy. Who it's gets the ones right who get greedy. Yeah. And maybe shoot it into their arm, mm-hmm. or saying, "Oh, I'm going to do this again because I got such a rush out of it." And they keep that cycle up. We did one guy, and he did 22 robberies before we finally got him. Why? Well, what? Uh, what tripped him up finally? He. Uh, we put it. We got his face off video. Yeah. Put it out in the news. One eight hundred. Wrap me out. Boom, out it goes. Yeah. And we had him quartered in an apartment three hours later. That's unbelievable. So yeah. he just forgot to put the stocking on his head oh, that time. We, right? I could tell you stories. <laughs> I could honestly tell you stories. And we made funny videos. This guy once, robbery, we had such a blast. This guy goes into the store, forgets to pull the balaclava down. This is all on video, <laughs> right? Lays the gun on the counter so he can pull the balaclava down. Yeah. And then picks the gun back up. The clerk doesn't grab it. But yet we've got 10 solid seconds of this guy's face. We had his name within 24 hours. So. Not all these crimes are as sophisticated as you it's think. It's the bad yeah. ones who make the cops look good. Yeah. So. I mean, I could, I could be completely irresponsible here tonight, Shane, and tell your audience how to commit the perfect crime. Yeah. And never, ever, ever be held responsible for it. Mm-hmm. But I'd be irresponsible of me to do that. Yeah. And a lot of it is just common sense. There's three or four tenets that points you can you follow, and you'll never get caught. But I'm not going down that rabbit hole for obvious reasons. But um, I don't want to educate 
you know, anyway, you know what I'm saying, but... Yeah, luckily I don't think we have any criminals to be listening to the podcast, but who knows? It might be so enticing that, you know, that Doug Workby, he really made good points. (laughs) How can I get in touch with him? Does he have a class? I can, can, uh, yeah, I can evidence proof your your crime pretty pretty easily here. It's it's not that, uh, it's not rocket science, I can say that. It's pretty easy to to commit the perfect crime. Yeah. But very few people... Uh, have the self-discipline to do that and be able to do that internally internalize it right so what's the what's the like standard deviation of like criminal profiles like are we like what percentage would be like like high intelligent what percentage are like high impulsive Hmm. um like for every 99 dumb criminals do you get one smart one one guy who's real good like how what's what's the average distribution there in the the key theme in any type of police work are addictions Hmm. whether it be alcohol or drugs if in fact they have an addiction and they need to feed that addiction, they're going to commit some sort of criminal act. Right. How how angry or how bad they want it depends on the crime they commit. Mm-hmm. Whether it be a garage B and E or a house B and E, then gets bumped to a robbery, then becomes to a hijacking or a carjacking. The level of desperation determines the type of crime they're going to go. Right. The ones who aren't doing it because they have an addiction but it's because of the rush of the job, and we've all seen these in movies and that sort of thing. Yeah, Those are the ones that don't make a name for themselves, but yet are highly skilled at what they do. That's true, and there, and there are criminal profilers and forensic psychologists, Shane, that make a living answering the question you just a- asked. Mm-hmm. That's a whole, a whole subspecialty, if you will, in, in the whole domain of police work, where you're trying to analyze why someone's doing something, what, uh, what motivates them, what's driving them. What's making him go rogue? What's making him go to the dark side? It's so much. It's so complicated. And as homicide investigators, we rely heavily on forensic uh, psychologists and profilers mm-hmm. to give us a, a snapshot, if you will, or a, a blueprint of what we're looking for to help us help guide our, our resources. Right. So it's a good question, but it's a real. That's one for the profilers and the, and the psychologists. <laughs> There's no simple answer for that. It's so, there is no human simple. behavior is so complicated. Yeah. It's so complicated. And we're. We're, we're the lay people in terms of human behavior. We see it on the grassroots, mm-hmm. right, in the streets, and where the rubber meets the road type of thing. And, and so we're kind of like in the lay, the lay person's uh, domain there trying to figure out what, what's going on, right? Yeah. We're relying on subject matter experts behind this, right? So a, yeah. lot of, a lot of homicides were solved through, you know, the, the wonderful assistance of these specialists, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it, it takes a whole whole team of people just behind the front lines, too, supporting as well. There's right? a lot goes on between these two years that, <laughs> that take a awful lot of expertise to figure out. Right? Yeah, the the one that fascinates me is is like the environment, right? Like right. like people tend to tend to behave as poorly or or well as people around them are also behaving, right? Mob mentality. Very I think so. like Huge. very much. So. You know, I think Acceptance, back to the becoming part of a group. Yeah, I think e- even like impulsively, like I think back to the 2010 riots in Vancouver, and I was I was locked off in a bar above Granville Street drinking Guinness watching people get tear gas but you know then you and like Facebook social media was just getting to the point where they could start doing facial recognition like across a broad um, social media platform which is interesting to see but I also like from I also almost like sympathized a bit to like the person who was walking by like the coach store and saw like a three thousand person dollar purse sitting there you know 
dozens of people in the store looting and breaking windows and they're just like it seems like such a innocuous thing to just grab that and walk classic crime crime of opportunity right Right, exactly and and, and crime of temptation right Mm -hmm. you have to have a really strong moral compass and a a strong foundation to resist that that's Mm -hmm. that's very difficult like you said and a high percentage of those group that were looting that night in 2010 mm-hmm. could give a rat's ass about the Vancouver Canucks. Right, exactly. That's they what were it, not sports yeah. fans. Yeah. They were simply taking opportunity of what was being played out in front of them. Yeah. And that is criminal activity leading to some sort of, I'm going to get something out of this, mm-hmm. to where millions of dollars of damage was done. Yeah. That whole genre, sorry, because that whole genre of mob mentality is something you touched on. Huge. Video, that, that's a whole other topic of discussion. Yeah. We could be here for hours, right? Yeah. It's fascinating stuff how people behave in mobs. They would never think of doing it as an individual, right? Yeah, exactly. They strengthen numbers and they follow, the, the followers follow the leaders and it's, all of a sudden it's cool to start smashing windows and... Drinking Kool-Aid and shit like yeah. that. Um, yeah, like what you said, it just like the there was also that legend that aura of like oh if the canucks lose it's going to be like 94 again right there was almost this like it's fate that they're going to ride again if they lose and it's right. weird how people right. act in a way that that reaffirms that 100 you know? here's something more i'm going to give you a really funny analogy here i was in charge of the ride troop back in the day mm-hmm. and our job was to take care of try and mitigate the ride as quick as you possibly could so as the commander of the ride troop we had our guys with their rubber bullet firearms, and you would identify in our training scenarios who the troublemaker was. Mm. My job: take out that, take out that guy with the big mouth. Yeah. Take him out. You now diminish these leaders. Once right. you take the leaders out, the followers, the sheep, just yeah. drift away. Yeah. Because they see one, the police aren't going to put up with any crap, and two, if I say anything, I'm going to get a rubber bullet. Right. So, and that's the mentality of crowd control. Interesting. So, yeah. Crowd control and public discourse is so, it's so challenging, Shane, for so mm. many reasons, right? And but in today's day and age with all the video cameras and cell phone cameras, it's even more challenging because, like Chris alluded to a, a few months ago, snippets of video can tell a very inaccurate picture of what's yeah. really going on, right? 100%. It's really, it's really dangerous. So, um, the very difficult work crowd control. Very well, high, a high ability to be organized too for yes. people who are trying yes. to instigate a crowd, right? Like you could have multiple yes. leaders like all in different uh, locations around it, I'm high sure. High risk, low reward type of a uh, type of work and uh, yeah, one time you get a, a riot type scenario, you're in for a world of hurt. Well, I, I'm debating whether I'm going to ask this question or not. We touched on it before, but, but you're gonna ask I'm always, you I'm always curious about it ever since, ever since uh, the story I told you guys earlier, but I'm sure you've dealt with uh, the same person on many, many occasions, whether it's in Edmonton or a smaller town. Um, is there such a thing as an irredeemable human being? I probably can give two or three instances where I didn't think anything of it. Mm-hmm. Interviewing, so one of the best stories ever I ever had, young kid in for Robert, mm-hmm. 16 years of age. My interview, he's, he's trying to be the tough guy and everything, but I can see the lip go, so now I own him. I own him. And the line of the interrogation simply went this, you have two options here. You can go down this path that you choose right now, and you and I will sit across this table countless times from here. Or you can literally give your head a shake, realize that this is not the path for me, I'm not going to do this again, and we'll never see each other again. He never did, until I heard from his uncle, ran into him at a car dealership 15 years ago, mm-hmm. or, or later, and he says, you're Chris Hayden. 
You spoke to my nephew. He had committed something, a crime, a robbery. You interviewed him, and he never committed a crime again, and I want to thank you on behalf of my family. Mm -hmm. Things like that literally give you goosebumps as a peace police officer, but he made that conscious decision mm -hmm. that if you want to keep seeing me, keep it up. Mm -hmm. If you don't, and, and there was, of course, there were some light drugs involved, but not addiction. Addiction is such a terrible thing mm -hmm. when it comes to career criminals. But he chose to go that route. And I find those stories incredibly rewarding. So they can be redeemed. Mm -hmm. It's And sometimes it's one job, sometimes it's three jobs, sometimes it's ten jobs. Or the worst case scenario redeemable is they die. Mm -hmm. Die because of the actions of the police or the actions of themselves. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I do believe in that. I agree with you, Chris. The vast majority of people have the have a potential to be redeemed, mm -hmm. in my humble opinion. There are occasions, though, Shane, where you would meet an individual who... For all intents and purposes, has has gone down the dark side of life, and they just can't come back. The, the rabbit hole's too deep. Mm -hmm. They've dug a trench so deep they just can't get back. Some really hardcore criminals. I interviewed a bunch of those type of people in Kingston uh, several times on murder files, um, armed robbery files, where you look at these people and you say, "There's no coming back from this. These people are they who they are who they are." They're not going to be um, redeemed in any way, shape, or form. They're not going to be, uh, I'm searching for the term, um, rehabilitated. Yeah. We called them rounders. They're, they're the pretty rounders. much gone down the path. Chick. They Chick. just did the cycle. So yeah. we're, we're talking some really hardcore people here. Yeah. So like some real hardcore criminals that are just, they're just gone past the, the point of no return. I suppose, like, the interesting question is what, or there's a couple, What what is the point of no return? How do you How do you classify that? Um, and then also like, okay, if they've passed that, what do we owe those people as a society, right? right. Because <laughs> right. it's, you know, a uh, Judeo-Christian Western tenet that every life is valuable and that's what right. our kind of laws are based off, British common law. And it's, you know, we, we, we acknowledge that every life has value and meaning. But at what point does the cost to society weigh that? And just for the listeners, I have no answer to this. I want to hear people talk about it because it's just fascinating to me. How far is too far gone? Yeah, it's and a, what do you do about that? It's a subjective that? call, Shane, because every, every situation is so unique. But if you've got someone that's a, a chronic um, uh, murderer, for example, taking other people's lives. Habitual offenders that have taken multiple lives over a period of time. Maybe, for lack of a better term, a serial killer type individual, which are rare. And, and you know, they, they are rare, but they, they do exist, of course. Those type of people are, have gone down the rabbit hole so far they just can't come back. Mm -hmm. They're habitu hab habitual murderers. Where, where are they going to go? Yeah, you know, it, outside of the death penalty, where are these people going to end up? There's no, there's no place for them really in, in society. And you lock them up, and they, and they just cause correct. more hurt and pain that's and correct. suffering in that spot. That's correct. There's really no solution there, other than to remove them from society as long as you can, if not permanently. It's, mm -hmm. uh, because you know that the way that they're wired, whether it's psychological issues or whatever, they're going to kill again. Mm -hmm. So those people are, in my opinion, non-redeemable. Mm -hmm. But those are rare people, right? And in my in my homicide days, Shane, I probably only met half a dozen of those pure serial type killer types that are are not coming back. Yeah, right? half a dozen can do a lot of damage. Hundred percent, right? But a lot of people, most people, are redeemable. You can get them back. They can get they can get counseling. They can get off their addictions. To Chris's point, mm -hmm. they can start a new new life for and and just start fresh. It's difficult to do, but there are many many instances where I've worked on crimes I've worked on where people have rebounded back. 
and become you know become good good contributors to society and uh, um, it's just a matter of personal choice circumstance environment um, there's so many factors going to play Chris that we all we all know that it's a never-ending cycle for these habitual offenders as mm -hmm. they get caught they go okay you got me mm -hmm. and you as, a, as the police officer put them in the handcuffs they go to court they plead guilty they get two to three years they do good time they're back out in six months and they get running with their old friends and their, their addictions and it's right back and those are the ones where you deal with it's a revolving door mm -hmm. and nine times out of ten their life will catch up to them because of their cho lifestyle choices and I know for a fact this guy that we chased constantly for bank robbery OD and yet he had committed a robbery the day before it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy in many ways too Shane once a person does time for a serious crime it can be very difficult to to cleanse that that past right I mean that that carries around over their shoulder like an albatross for the rest of their lives there's a there's a whole myriad of employment opportunities they can't pursue because they have that serious criminal conviction they can't travel they, there's a lot of things a lot of doors that are closed that are open to uh, you and I and Chris that are permanently shut and that that in itself leads to despair and frustration and it's a vicious cycle, right? Once you've gone down that path, it's sometimes difficult for people to get back, Chris, because they have no other options, right? When when society is telling you you're something and everyone's telling you you're something, it's it's, it's hard. Yep. It's hard to have the the mental fortitude to 100%. to say, you know, like it, same way with a an entrepreneur, a founder of a company. Everyone's ah, that's a stupid idea. Even if you know in your heart, like that's a great idea, right. it's it's hard to block out those voices. It's very true, right? And so, it takes it takes willpower. Yeah, it honestly, takes willpower, yeah. and a lot of it to get out of that loop. Mm -hmm. And as Doug said, and we both said, people can be redeemed. Uh, do we have that answer? No, we don't. No. But it can happen. And it's an interesting question. Hopefully it gets people thinking. I'll give I think you a quick anecdote in terms of redeeming. I was walking through West Lebanon Mall a few years back, and uh, mind you, I was in, I was in Wetaskiwin. I'm going to date myself here in the mid-80s. Mm -hmm. And I had a fellow come up to me in the food court uh, not that long ago and said to me, are you a constable workman? I said, I am. He said, well, I'm so-and-so from Moscatis. And he gave me a big bear hug mm -hmm. in front of his wife. He said, you saved my life in 19-whatever. You picked me up for impaired driving. I haven't had a drop to drink since. I haven't had a drop to drink since. Wow. This was, this was like 30 years ago. Yeah. Thing. This guy remembered it. And, uh, I mean, to me, I, I hate to be clinical about it. It was a, another impaired driver. Yeah. For him, it was a life-changing moment. Yeah, no kidding. So it just it reaffirmed to me that you know maybe you did have an impact down in your early career, right? You did yeah. have an impact, and that was a very very redeeming uh, experience, Chris, when that gentleman came up to me and gave me the big bear hug. And it, it's happened probably in anyone's career, where after you've been retired for a period of time, and they come up and recognize you. Yeah. And then you go, you know what? Maybe I did do the right thing for being a cop for that little. Yeah. The right thing is always the right yeah. thing, you know. And it, yeah. whether you get recognition for it or not, it's you never know the the impact you could have on someone. Very true. Yeah. And, I mean, after after a time, the, the, these calls become very redundant. Shane, mm -hmm. you're going to the next impaired driver, you're going to the next accident, the next break and enter, the next armed robbery, the next. I hate to say it, the next murder. It Relentless. So, yeah. It becomes clinical and repetitive and. And you just sort of get desensitized, right? Mm -hmm. And you become part of the machine, right? No kidding. And uh, when you get the humane story like that, a little bit of humanity injected, mm -hmm. it kind of makes it all kind of cool. It makes, it makes you think, eh, Chris? Our, our careers was reactive policing. Mm -hmm. What works is proactive policing. Mm -hmm. yeah. In our day, 
you didn't have time for proactive. Right. Because there was too much stuff going on. Now, the way the policing is changing with Dale McVie and the different different units he's putting together, mm-hmm. they're trying to solve the problem, so it's not so busy out there. That's good. Is that a role for the police? Yeah, the police play a role. Mm-hmm. But so do other professionals. Mental health professionals, huge mm-hmm. when it comes to any sort of crime. is because I'm not saying that I don't even know the number of people with mental health issues, mm-hmm. but we certainly dealt enough with, in our careers, when, even as negotiators, mm-hmm. people with mental health issues. They're it's not a matter for the police mm-hmm. we can't help them but there is help there for them right things are much more sophisticated today there, there's more root cause uh, you know identification going on more you know um, what's the real issue here preventive type of initiatives uh, more collaboration with other other professions mm-hmm. to try and get to the root cause trying to eliminate in our day it was so repetitive Shane you mm-hmm. rest the same 500 people over and over and over yes. again. It became a revolving door. We were just putting band-aids on the problem, Shane. Yeah, eventually we you got to gotta stop and say, we got to try this a different way. 100%. Right? In, in the one town I worked in, a, a population of 5,000, I probably only knew 300. Mm-hmm. It was the same 300 we arrested over and over again. The other 4,700 were just law-abiding good people. You, never, you, you only meet them in the coffee shop or in the <laughs> restaurant, right? So, what uh, what were the factors that led to both you guys retiring? I think you said you retired in the same year. Yeah, for me, Shane, it was about another. It's often, you know, everybody has these plans of the optimum time to retire. I always say it's a direct function of what opportunities are presented to you mm. when you're ready to retire, about to retire. For me, it was about a job opportunity to join Air Canada Corporate Security in Toronto uh, for a year and then a few bunch of years, seven or eight years in Vancouver with Air Canada Corporate Security. It's just an opportunity presented itself. Mm-hmm. door open it was one of those types of opportunities that was only going to be there for a very short time I had to make a decision to retire and jump on board or literally and figuratively and uh, <laughs> or pass it by so I took the uh, I took the opportunity and did it and never looked back so it was kind of cool to get into the into the private sector. yeah so it was a good a good opportunity to jump and and you felt the time is right 100%. there was nothing left undone 100 percent I mean yeah. my, my last three years in the RCMP Shane I was very blessed I traveled the world uh, doing specialized work right mm-hmm. and uh, Chris jokes about it a lot but um, but then I joined Air Canada then I really started to travel <laughs> and then I then I saw what travel was all about and uh, you know like our area in Toronto was all of Europe and yeah. South America and our area in Vancouver was all of Asia Pacific, all of uh, anywhere we flew into Australia or Be- Beijing or Shanghai, San Francisco, Vancouver, Winnipeg. We had all that area in, uh, under our umbrella. So we really traveled and we had some very unique experiences. We took all the skills we learned in the RCMP in the police world and parlayed that into the civilian world with, uh, within a, a major international airline. Did it feel like more or less pressure kind of making the jump to the private sector? You know, I learned, I learned very quickly what profit and loss was all about. In the <laughs> RCMP, quite frankly, that didn't really factor in. We had yeah. a major crime. We spent the money that we felt we had to spe- spend within reason mm-hmm. to solve the crime. We, we were blessed with uh, some pretty robust budgets back in my day. In Air Canada, every nickel was important. In the airline industry, the profit margins are very slim. And uh, so the, the budget conscious piece of it was a, quite a, an awakening to me. Right. But the rest of it, as far as the pressure goes, no, I think I don't think you can replicate the pressure of uh, working on major crimes or as a hostage negotiator because when you think about it, the stakes are so high. Mm-hmm. I mean, one of the biggest adjustments of going to the private sector, Shane, is okay, this, this decision is going to cost the company some money, but no one's going to die here. Mm-hmm. Whereas in our old world, if you if you screw up, someone could could 
die. Right. It's, it's real life, real drama stuff, right? Yeah. So the, in terms of different kind of pressure, right? Yeah. It, it, sometimes it's hard for me to take things seriously in a boardroom when people were analyzing something in terms of the cost, how many dollars it was going to cost. And I'm thinking to myself, who cares? No one's going <laughs> to die here. No one's dead. Let's right. just move on. Spend the money and move on. Kind of naive on my part, but that's, mm-hmm. that was the adjustment, the adjustment for me, right? Yeah. Well, I'm sure it kind of feels like like the volume's been turned down a little, a little bit, bit, right? It's just like that's every, a great or or it pushes your like your sphere of comfort. You're like I've been yeah. in where even like on on film sets and, and trips yeah. and stuff. Like if something's gone really wrong one trip, next time when something goes wrong, if it's not nearly that, it's like ah, oh, we've dealt with worse than that before. Hundred percent. Right? Yeah, yeah, I, I can't agree more. Um, and again, uh, it's, it's, it's pros and cons, right? Air Canada afforded such a wonderful opportunity to me and my family to, to travel. Yeah. We had Air Canada passes and the world was our oyster. And uh, so we, we leveraged that into a positive, right? And uh, just made the adjustment. And it was difficult at times because you miss the camaraderie and the closeness of the police environment and the, you know, the, yeah. you know, the type of work we did. And, the, you know, it brought people together, right? And you became a real, a, a true team, right, Chris? You become a true team in that world. So I missed a lot of that. Yeah, I've never been to Beijing. <laughs> I don't recommend it. <laughs> um, how about you, Chris? What was uh, what was the decision to hang it up for you like? It wasn't fun anymore. Yeah. I had 27 years on the job, and it just wasn't fun anymore. So I pulled the pin, um, much to the chagrin of my wife and very young children, mm. to go on full pension. And, and then took a completely different path, never expected. So in my police career, I got to know Bob Layton yeah. uh, to part of our fundraising for the Air One program. And so Bob, I think I had been repli- retired for 10 months, sent me an email. We're getting a helicopter. And I replied back, where do I apply? <laughs> How excited were you? It's like and, a new toy. And I had the job within a month. Yeah. And then that led to seven and a half years of me riding around in a, a traffic helicopter. Which, like, I can't even imagine. I read you, you said it was like quarterbacking up there. You oh, were... when it came to police work, in yeah. that, it, honestly, to this day, it just plays out in front of you. It's so And cool. you call it. It's like playing Grand Theft Auto, but for the good side, not the bad side. Honestly, <laughs> it, it, it was so easy up there. And, and every time I climbed into Air One, I got goosebumps. Just like a dog handler and his yeah. dog go out in the car, the dog starts howling as soon as the handler hits the siren because he's going to play. Yeah. And it's time to play. So then, I must say, Global One was nothing like Air One, mm-hmm. but yet we would roll up on stuff, mm-hmm. on, say, breaking news, and the five o'clock producer would say, Chris, give us three minutes, and I would rattle on for three minutes and not have one idea what I said. No way. But they would come back to me and say, that was golden. Like, All right, I'll go, keep that doing was it. amazing. Chris I'll- left such an indelible mark, Shane, that to this day, people come up to him, and I've seen it, ask him for a photograph and an autograph. Really? True. True story. They recognize him, and they say... Chris, can I get a picture and, uh, and we sign this? And of course, I just quietly laugh in the background. But, <laughs> yeah, no I'm for sure you've taken a few of, your, of the pictures, right? Because yeah. of your demeanor. Yeah, yeah. yeah <laughs> I have. But a lot of people say, well, where do I know you from somewhere? I said, have you ever been to jail? No. Did you ever listen, <laughs> you ever listen to the air traffic on Global in the Afternoon? Yeah, that was me. That was it. That, well, I, and I go like this, pretend I got here. There he is. That's what I would get. <laughs> Because I pretend I had to put the earphones on. Did you have to do any uh, training for the on-air stuff, or was it just you Honestly, had that natural gift? Nat- natural gift, and that which led into our business. Yeah, gift of the gap. That's unreal. It literally set people at ease mm-hmm. because we were comfortable with what we were doing, 
makes the people that we work with comfortable. So, so let's hear the, uh, either of you can tell this, let's hear the origin story of Haywork Secure Driving Services, where we're in the very beautiful office of right now. I can't tell where. It's a secret location. in a secret location somewhere in Edmonton. Yeah. We're going to Dark in five because you've got to be deprogrammed when we leave this room. Oh, uh, deneuralized, right? It, it, it was simply a matter of Doug and I had done a few major events yeah. within the city. And because, and the best way I can put this is because of politics, it became not fun. So we literally said to each other, well, why don't we come up with a company and maybe we could get, do this. And mm -hmm. we literally did. We had a discussion on the phone and then put all of our licensing together and everything like that in September of 2017, put our, our group, our, uh, our company together mm -hmm. and sat down with the same people that we were working with. That's what we had to offer. This is perfect. This is exactly what we're looking for. Mm -hmm. And grew from that one instance and word of mouth to where we are today. So what was the what was the two sentence elevator pitch? It's plain and simple, retired law enforcement, lots of experience on dealing with people, lots of experience in critical incidents that we can make your client feel safe and yet you'll never know we're there. As a, our little blurb on the back of our business card yeah. simply says, driven by experience. Driven by experience. Like so, it. yeah, so going back to just to augment what Chris just said, back in the day we were doing consulting work for a number of agencies, right? And uh, some well known agencies here in the city, some in, in the entertainment and the sports world. And we thought, you know, we, we can branch out here a little bit and not, not restrict ourselves. So, back in my Air Canada days, uh, Shane, in, in Vancouver, we, we one of our responsibilities was looking after the personal protection of our executives. Mm -hmm. uh, there was a lot of strife going on at the time with uh, union issues and whatnot, so our executives were you know targets. There a lot of angst, uh, and then we also had celebrities that traveled on our airplanes, and also we had celebrities that did promotional work for us as well. So we were responsible for their well-being in house. Um, it quickly grew beyond our capacity, so we hired private contractors. So in Vancouver, I hired a team. Uh, it was consisting of a uh, consisting of a retired Vancouver police staff sergeant and a retired Mountie out of Burnaby, and they had set up their own private protection company. And so I simply handed a lot of my work off to them on a contract. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know we had some some of the more high profile entertainers in the world working with us, so they looked after our, their close protection uh, responsibilities on our behalf. And that kind of gave us the embryo and the and the concept that. Um, you know, maybe we could do something here in Edmonton as well. It's a mm -hmm. different market than Vancouver, obviously, but we, we saw a demand in certain circles, right? And uh, we thought if we started small and in a boutique sort of business, we could we could uh, make it grow organically, and that's what happened, right, Chris? We just sort of and it's you know, literally word of mouth has made us expand. Referrals, word of mouth, um, reputation, um, you know, just uh, just expanded. So we're you know we're in the entertainment world, we're in the sports world, we're in the, in the government world, provincial, mm -hmm. federal government world. Um, we're in the private sector, we high net worth individuals. So the cool part about it is we meet all these people from all walks of life. Mm -hmm. And that's the cool part is the, we get to engage these people from all walks of life. Some of the most recognized names on the planet we get to work with. And it's yeah. really cool. I mean, you get to understand that these are just people as well. You know, we'll have, the, we'll have a high profile entertainer come into town with a high profile band and all they want to know is where's the best place to get some Italian food? Yeah. Or what's the best uh, Chinese takeout? Or where can I get a good coffee? Where can I get a good pizza? And we just realize these are just people. The right? listeners are going to want to know all those places. Right, so you right. Know. And guess what? We know where they're at. Yeah. <laughs> a, a humorous anecdote is Chris is driving a high-end lead singer for a high-end, uh, we're very well-known A-list band. Yeah. 
going down Jasper Avenue, and the lead singer says to Chris, what's a donaire? So Chris explains to him what a donaire well, is. Well, let me tell you. Yeah, let me quite, tell you what a donaire is. I'm proud of them hearing that. Yeah. And I simply said, it's something you eat after you've been at the bar, and it's about 3 o'clock in the morning. Nailed it. That's yeah. it, exactly. Yeah. That's, That's all right. I had to say to him. <laughs> and this really was a very high-profile individual. Did he get one? He did not. Because oh. he was back on he the ran plane at one thirty. He, ran he was time. back on the plane at one thirty in the morning. Yeah. <laughs> and then fast forward twenty four hours later on a similar type gig, Chris is sitting in a in a in a bar at two o'clock in the morning with a very well known rapper. Mm-hmm. Hanging out with this rapper in his uh Chris's uh, tuxedo. We, we were almost like identical twins. <laughs> <laughs> but that's what makes it so interesting for us, Shane. We, yeah. we didn't get in this to to make a buck a load of money. We get in we got in it to, to pay our bills run our business and have some fun at the same time and meet some people. And the other cool part of it is we have a team of consultant chain that are all, all retired military, police, mm-hmm. private sector people that we, we provide part-time supplemental employment to. And it's it's so cool to be able to do that. We get a lot of satisfaction to, to, to afford that opportunity to people that want to augment their pensions on a part-time basis with no real commitment. Mm-hmm. You know, they work when they want to work, they work when they can work. A lot of them are snowbirds. They go to they go to Scottsdale in the winter. They work with us when they can, and that's that's the other cool part of it. We get to share that the pie a little bit with those guys and girls. So. Yeah, well, and you, you know, based on the people that you have, the contacts, you they've already got the skill set. So you right. just basically give them the briefing, and they right. go, "I got this." Right? We have a very very simple business model. Very simple. We hire them as contractors. They come and do an event. They submit an invoice to us. We pay the invoice. Yeah. And we have such a diversity of skill sets. Like I said, Canadian military, British military, municipal police, RCMP, OPP, um, JTF2, Calgary police, JTF2, military. We got a cross section of retired people that we tailor made to the client. Mm-hmm. So if a client comes in, they want a certain package, we'll hand pick the team, put mm-hmm. it together, and away we go. And it's worked for us uh, very well. From a business owner standpoint, when we are at the airport or at a corporate jet area and the client steps off and simply gives us a wave mm-hmm. and you see the look of relief on them knowing that they're in good hands, then we know we've got the greatest business model they could ever imagine. That's One thing cool. we leverage, Shane, is, is trust. Right? Yeah. So when these clients come in, they know us, they know what is said in the car, what goes on in the car stays in the car. Mm-hmm. We've, we've all heard of the... Uh, that fiasco in, uh, in I think it was in Arizona with the Ottawa Center. Oh, players, the Uber. The Uber yeah. fiasco. We leveraged some of that. And it's no disrespect to the Ubers of the world, but it, when you get into our into our SUV, yeah. our trained people, you are not going to be filmed um, mm-hmm. criticizing a, a coach. Yeah. Is what I'm saying. It's the p- it? peace of mind and for people who mm-hmm. whose reputations Correct. are, their, are their livelihood, right? That's right. That's so valuable. Yep. Discretion is, is, a, is the lifeblood of our business, right? And mm-hmm. like when I say to you, we, we work with some of the most recognized people on the planet. It's not an exaggeration. And, and when we work with these people, you know, oftentimes we'll sign NDAs, non-disclosures, or oftentimes it's a handshake. Right? Yeah. It's a trust thing, right? And we don't disclose who we're working with. And, uh, you know, we just do it. In, if we do talk about them, it's in very gener- generic terms, right, Chris? And, to the we, point, and we develop these relationships with these individuals to the point that if they're coming to Edmonton, they just simply text us. Yeah. There's no big hullabaloo of emails and, and this. Yeah. They're simply te- arriving at three. 
see you there. And you just have the peace of mind to know like it's gonna get sorted out. Yeah. That's so valuable. It's same Perfect. same way when we work with good people in film. It's just 100%. tell them where we're going, what we're doing. Okay, perfect. It, it's off your plate. Right. Yep. You don't have to Pe- think anymore. People tend to work like to work with people they like and trust, right? <clears throat> they like to. Like, we have a we have a it's, it's a kind of a non scientific term. We have a no jerk rule. Mm-hmm. We don't work with jerks. We don't work for jerks. Yeah. Oh, so, perfect. because we have, we have judicious choice who we, who we work with and who mm-hmm. we work for, right? Mm-hmm. We're in that position, Shane, where we can cherry pick the people that work with us and cherry pick our clients. Have you been in a position to have to turn down a client because of of whatever is involved with that job? It's just the headache's not worth it? When we put the company together, we had one cardinal rule. We will not get involved in criminal activity. Mm-hmm. And if, in fact, we if somebody approaches us and we, and we do our due diligence mm-hmm. to see who we are working with, and we see that there's some sort of a criminal element involved in this, it's because of the nature of who we are. Yeah. We'll just simply say that's, I'm sorry. For obvious reasons, right? Yeah. For obvious reasons. We're, we're not going to be able to help you. Yeah. We, we've said no a few times. Fortunately, it's rare in our business, Shane, where we, we, we have to say no. Mm-hmm. Just, you know, protect our own our own uh, reputation and credibility and uh, the company reputation. But we're very fortunate in that the majority of people we work with are, are solid, solid people. Mm-hmm. Like really good people. Mm-hmm. Regardless of their station in life, these the one consistency is they're they're just good people. You know, they, the one thing we've recognized is the high, the, the more the bigger the name, the less they want you to be starstruck. They just want <laughs> to be treated like a person. Yeah. They just don't they don't want the fanboy stuff. They don't mm-hmm. want the they just they want to go to Starbucks and grab a coffee. Yeah. Without be bothered, right? And and, and we le- we learn that fast, very quickly in our game, right? Just treat people real uh, in a real way, in a real fashion, and. You know, like regular people, right? And and you make them feel comfortable. Mm-hmm. If they feel comfortable, then you know you're doing the right thing. Mm-hmm. But yet it projects throughout the entire event that they're at and everything like that. Yeah. To the point where if they're in the middle of an event and it's starting to go sideways, they just simply look at you and go like that and yeah. you take them away. Yeah. And, and quite frankly, they, they take a lot of strength, Shane, in our backgrounds, right? Like we, we're not shy in explaining who we are. Mm-hmm. You know, we've got lots of Canadian military experience. We've got people just came back from Afghanistan. We've got British people, military people. We've got coppers. We've got, we've got martial arts guys and girls. Mm-hmm. We've got, so we're not shy in explaining who we are because it gives people a sense of peace, right? And, yeah. And, and peace of mind. Of course. Same okay. with any any job or client relationship. You right. want to, like, here's right. my background. Like, right. if this works for you, great. If not, yeah, that's right. Good, that's great, too. And, and we leverage the fact that, and it's no disrespect to any other company out there. We're, I got to be careful I say this, but we're, we're not, I got to be careful I say this, but we're not simply drivers. Yeah. We <laughs> offer a full package. For, so, oh, so for if sure. the yeah. crap hits the fan, Shane. Yeah. We know how to get out of there. We know we call it getting off the X. That's yeah. a colloquial the inter- internal term. We get off the X. Off we the X. Get off the X. Like X marks the spot. Correct. You're getting so out of there. So if something's going sideways, yeah. we don't like the feel of it or look of it, or somebody's harassing somebody, we know how to get them out of there and off the X. Our job is to read the room. Yeah. Read the room. It looks like it's going to go south. You just simply say it like it's time to go. Yeah. You, you raise, we're incredibly discreet in what we do. Mm-hmm. You raised the point earlier, Shane, that uh, you've been to events with us where you haven't seen us for the first hour. You guys are ninjas. Right. So and we take pride in that. We all, pride. all of a sudden you'll be next to me. Like, what the hell did you come from? <laughs> we take pride in reacting when we have to. And yeah. when we're not, we're in the background, right? Yeah. Like we'll be at an event at a dinner or a function and we're so far in the shadows you, you can't see us. Mm-hmm. But then when, when the you know the, the so colloquial or proverbial crap hits the fan, we're there for you, right? Yeah. We just react. That's switch again, right? Is there, is there ever an element where it's the opposite and you want to have that presence? You want to act as a as a visible deterrent like right off the hop? Or 100%. is it always just... 
observe and then react. If we've got to move our principal from point A to point B and we're in a high traffic area, then our our presence has to be there mm -hmm. to get them through. Yeah. They need to know that we're right there beside them and we're simply, with the assistance of the people that are in the venue that we're at, that we need to get from this point to this point as quick as we possibly can and we're gonna need your help. When you include the people that are working for that venue to be part of your team, things happen dramatically that they wanna just walk with the big guns, so. Every, every scenario, Shane, is, is unique. It's, it's fact-specific, every environment's fact-specific, every client's fact-specific. So there are times we'll have, a, we'll have a visible presence. You'll see three or four of us out in front, and there are other times when we're, you won't see us for an hour, mm -hmm. right, or, or if or at all. The, uh, like, I've worked in lots of bars over the years, and there's, there's like, a de-escalation kind of psychology that goes on. And I, as a bartender, like, not that I have any fighting experience, but you'd see there's some, there's some customers where you know the right, the right um, uh, plan of action, course of action, is to, everything's okay, calm them down. But then there's some you know, like, I'm going to come over the top with being aggressive, and that's going to work. And it's this weird subconscious, like, you just you get the feeling from experience, that's right? right? And, and that's, it literally goes back to our law enforcement experience. Yeah. That we know how to read a room, we know how to read a troublemaker, mm -hmm. and you, when you come into a room, you identify where the problems are gonna be. Yeah. Some of the best training we receive, Shane, is not the self-defense, not the tactical stuff, the, you know, the, the martial arts stuff that we, we've, we've learned over the years, it's the negotiator skills, right? Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, we alluded to earlier, Chris and I have both taken the hostage negotiator course, crisis negotiator course at the Canadian Police College. We, we've also trained with the FBI in Quantico, with the Brits in uh, Hendon College in the UK. All of those, all of that experience all combines to give you uh, a skill set that you can rely upon to dig into when you're faced with that guy in the bar mm -hmm. attacking your principal or about to attack your principal. It's not always about the, you know, the punch to the throat. It's about some types of soft skill stuff, right? Yeah. To play. And often that's more, more, more prevalent than the, than the actual tactical stuff, right? If you get tactical, if you have to go tactical, you've almost failed in your mission to some extent. Right, exactly. It's like we, we don't want it to even get close to that's that. That's right? right. That's right. Because right. our job is to get that person out of that situation. 99% yeah. of the time we can get out of there and get out of there in one piece. So mm -hmm. we, get, we get pretty devious, if you will, when it, when it comes to our escape routes and our, our decoys. There, there's a there's a well-known hockey player, retired hockey player that uh, we've been known to come across from time to time, and we have a we have a stunt double. No way. We have a guy that uh, <laughs> is that individual's uh, uh, absolute doppelganger. So we've been known to deploy that individual from time to time, just as a decoy to get the real guy. That's unreal. In a car into the airport. <laughs> Whatever gets the job I, I, done. I'm speaking a little out of school here, but but it's more humorous than it is anything else because we have a lot of laughs with it, particularly when that guy signs autographs. You guys have like full reign to just do as outrageous of whatever it takes to get the job done, within which the is the cool, the law, which right? is, yeah, within yeah. the parameters of law, but that's, that's like right. the coolest thing ever. And yeah. completely confident in what we're doing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Have you, has there ever been a hot air balloon involved? A hot air balloon? Have you ever? We never say never. What's the most daring escape that you guys have done? You don't have to say with who, but like, did you have to jump out a window, climb down a Part of the job of what we do is we do in advance. Yeah. Before the venue even happens, mm -hmm. we know our ways in, our ways out, and mm -hmm. our escape route out. Mm -hmm. I think one of the common themes is, if in fact, they have to be at the airport at this time. Mm -hmm. So if they're still at the venue and the window's getting smaller and smaller and smaller, 
have we accelerated heavily to get him to the airport at that time? Yes, we have. <laughs> but guess what? We got to the airport at that time. Yeah. Within the parameters of the law. Within the parameters of the law. Full, I did yeah. not say that. <laughs> Let's put it this way, Shane. We're, we're experts at going through kitchens, service elevators, back alleys. <laughs> You know, the, the most glamorous person in the world is going through the kitchen. That's all I wanted to know. Right. I just want to know it's, it's like elevator. an action movie in They just don't lives. care, right? They just don't care. Um, I, I really want to touch on crisis negotiation or just negotiation in general because um, so many people don't, don't face a lot of like kind of high-pressure environments or high-pressure situations or, or they face a lot of small ones. Like, so let's talk about the physical and physiological, mental kind of emotional responses people have, what you've noticed. Obviously, with your extensive years of training, I'm sure you guys have both learned to, well, not even learned to, but your body just mitigates that because you have such experience in it. But for the average person, like, like I know for the longest time, if I saw someone get punched within 20 feet of me, my heart rate is through mm-hmm. the roof. It's just like, right. I'm not worried about myself. Like, I'm, right. I'm just like... That, that violence just seems to like paralyze me sometimes. Um, and I don't know, like, so so what have you observed from people and, and how can people sort of train around that or? Well, in, in a, sorry, Chris, in, a, in our world, Shane, um, the, the, the one constant is people are in crises, right? When we're dealing with them, by the time we're involved, mm-hmm. uh, back in our old careers, uh, particularly people are in full on crisis. Their, their equilibrium is out there. The coping skills are out of whack. Mm-hmm. They're so far gone down the path, they don't see any hope, right? So they're, they're in full-on crises. So it's our job to bring them back into a into an equilibrium, into an area where they can see some light at the end of the tunnel and see some hope, right? Mm-hmm. And and one of the things, a lot of people, there's a misconception about hostage crisis negotiators, they have to be a good talker. But in, in reality, you have to be a good listener. Good listener yeah. You have to be a good listener. So active listening is, is, the, is the fundamental lifeblood of being a good negotiator, active listening. And it comes down to this theme, Shane. It's when someone's in crisis... You have as a as a person that he doesn't he or she doesn't even know some stranger on the other end of a phone or a bullhorn. You have to earn the right to understand their problem. Mm-hmm. You can't you can't immediately walk in. The worst thing you can say as a negotiator is, "Hey Shane, I know exactly where I you're know, coming I, from." Yeah. Yeah. You haven't got a clue where yeah. you're coming from. You're out as a negotiator. You've lost credibility. So you you spend your time with your active listening and your empathy and your mm-hmm. framing and your you know, your mirroring all the skills that we learned uh, the the repetitive repeating uh, the last uh, phraseology. Um, you learn, you earn the right to understand the problem, and then when you get to that point, you start to problem solve. Some of these negotiations go on for hours and hours and hours. Yeah, trying to get to the to the point where you can understand the problem, and then try to work on a solution. So the, the common theme, that your point there, is people are in crises, and it's a matter of just trying to get uh, them back into uh, into a, a state where they can figure out that there's there are some options here. Because a lot of people have lost hope, and they're not all successful. Mm-hmm. I can give an example. No, they're not. I can't give too much detail of where a gentleman was going to take his own life and he was driving. And he was going to the city and communications put me in on the phone and I talked to him. And as I'm talking to him, of course, as a negotiator, you write notes mm-hmm. all the time to mm-hmm. your number two. And I just simply held up sign, talked to a dead man. This guy, was his. there was no deviating from his plan. Yeah. So he was on his way to the city, went to his designated de- is designated Chris thanks for talking to me and the shotgun went off 10 seconds wow and so that and those calls happen mm-hmm. this isn't Los Angeles this isn't New York this is Edmonton mm-hmm. and as a negotiator even though we're not from a big city but yet we have the same skills 
sets as the FBI, as mm -hmm. NYPD, as any major agency. Mm -hmm. It's all about the listening, and that you can't drive that point well. Mm -hmm. In when you're negotiating and you're in your cell in the command post, there's a negotiator cell. It's got to be completely quiet, yeah. so you can hear every word, Full every focus. tone, everything, <clears throat> because that's your hook. Mm -hmm. Once you get that hook, then you can start to develop that relationship. And, and what you do, Shane, is you balance the negotiating piece with the tactical piece. So you've got, you've generally got the place surrounded. Mm -hmm. You've got the uh, the guys and girls disguised as spruce trees out there in their ghillie suits with their. I'm being facetious here, but but you work the the negotiation piece with the tactical piece. It all kind of works hand in hand. Yeah. Where you where you start giving people options, you start eliminating options. Like mm -hmm. you start eliminating that they're going to be able to escape. That's not going to happen. Mm -hmm. So we've got to deal with the problem here. Let's, let's take that off the table. You're not going anywhere. We're staying until we resolve this. Yeah. And uh, you just you just it's just basic layman psychology, right? You just you start. Um, trying to figure out what's going on, like what's what's driving this person to where they are. Well, what I read one time was that often, oftentimes people in that situation are, are looking for a way out as 100%. well, right? Like they, 100%. they, they don't want to, they don't want to admit failure, but they're, they're almost happy when they get talked out, right? They, they get themselves into a jackpot. How the hell am I going to get out of this? Yeah. Right. And the more they listen to you, the more success you're going to have. Mm -hmm. If you can give them a safe passage out of there for them, and anybody that's with them, mm -hmm. that's the ultimate goal from any negotiator. And sometimes if it's a barricaded individual, he's the ultimate goal mm -hmm. to get that person out of crisis. Right. So. And, and we, you know, we, we sometimes turn these ultimate tragedies into comic relief. Uh, I'll tell you a quick story where we had a fellow barricaded in rural Alberta. We got there on scene at about 9 o'clock on a Friday night. I was working the bullhorn in the, in the trees, negotiating through the bullhorn because there's no phone connection. At noon or one o'clock the following day, the individual fortunately surrendered, and I met him at the police car, and I, I fulfilled my obligation. I was going to meet him, have a coffee, and I was mm -hmm. going to meet him down to Remand Center later and have a coffee. And he said to me, Shane, Doug, I was ready to surrender at midnight, but you wouldn't shut up. <laughs> Your problems are worse than mine. So I was starting to feel good about myself. I was exaggerating some of my problems a little bit, but he was, uh, he was it was so funny because he said, I, I was going to give up 12 hours ago. You just wouldn't shut up. <laughs> so I was, I, I, Either I wore, that or you're a great storyteller. I wore right? that for a long time, Shane. I wore that, that statement for a long time. carries so much weight. That is just wild. But yeah. again, that's one of those learning experiences, know when to shut up and listen, right? That's yeah, that's no kidding. That was a hard kidding. lesson for me to learn, what, learn when to shut up and listen, right? So. You ever get a guy come out of a situation where they're then like concerned about you like that? It's oh, yeah. just like, we, we I had, just want to make sure you're okay. We had a negotiator on our team that his problems were tenfold worse than anybody negotiated oh, with. Shit. And he made sure that the, the people that were barricaded knew about those problems. So they would often come out and say, are you okay? Yeah. Are you okay, Kevin? Do you think you've got it bad? What about me? Yeah, that's right. They start comparing upbringings, right? Oh, and, that's uh, And it became a, came in like a, a quid pro quo. Mm -hmm. And at the end of the day, we're all sitting there thinking, maybe we should get this guy in some help, our own guy. So that, from a negotiating standpoint, that could, there's nothing better than that. Yeah. 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 It might be overkill, but it worked, right? Yeah. Um, so what can the lay person do from a, from expert negotiators like yourself? What can a lay person do to, to incorporate more successful negotiation into their life? Listen. What? Listen. <laughs> you know, Honestly, what'd you say? Shane, listen. I mean, the, the negotiating techniques that we use, you can apply anywhere. You can yeah. apply it at home. You can mm -hmm. apply it at the grocery store when you're buying a car, you're buying a house. 
you're any 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 life is all about negotiations, all about quid pro quo. Everything's a negotiation, mm -hmm. right? And uh, you, and it's all about trying to listen to the other person's perspective. Mm -hmm. It's not all about you. That's the lesson I had to learn fairly quickly. It's not all about you, Doug. It's about the other person here. Make so, them feel valued. Yeah. yeah. You make a person feel valued by listening. To them. And be trustworthy. And that can be in your personal life and your professional life. And if you make a promise, deliver on the promise. Mm -hmm. Don't don't you know? Don't go back on the promise. If you if you agree to meet the fellow for a coffee after the remand center, you meet the gentleman for a coffee at the remand center. Mm -hmm. You it's all about integrity and treating people with respect. And uh, so yeah, to your point, Shane, it's all about listening and and trying to think of things through the other person's paradigm. Mm -hmm. That's the key. The the best way to solve a homicide, in my humble opinion, in my experience, is you try and put yourself in the shoes of the bad guy. What would the bad guy do here? What would he? How would he react here? What would he do here? What What would drive this? What would What would? How would he react to that particular stressor? And that's how you solve crimes. Mm -hmm. Is trying to put yourself in the in the shoes of the bad guy. It sounds or girl sounds so pedestrian, but it's true. I mean, if you can't think like the the bad person, you're you're really up against it, right? Well, again, I spent six years in surveillance, and the trick was think like the guy you're following. Mm -hmm. Don't anticipate them. Mm -hmm. Think. Like yeah, it's a total change exactly. in mindset, right? Yeah, it, it is. I mean, it's, like I said earlier, it's real life, real drama stuff, and mm -hmm. you learn as you go. And uh, the cool part of what we're doing now, Shane, is all these skills that we developed and we're fortunate enough to be trained on and developed through our careers. They, they all parlayed into our current our current uh, gig here mm -hmm. with HSDS. We use every skill we learned in HSDS every day, every day. We have some unique files on the go right now that are drawing. They're drawing on everything that we have. They're, we're going back in our in our history here and our experience, our training, and we're we're relying on that to get through it, right? Because mm -hmm. there's some challenges, um, even though we're in the private sector. I think what you guys have put together here is the ultimate. Um, it's got to be ultimately meaningful to you, and and they say meaning is the intersection of three things: it's what you're good at, what you enjoy doing, and what brings value to other people. And you guys seem to be right in the middle of that bullseye. That's a that's, great way to sum it up, Shane. That's we're, pretty well we're, our, we're our very business blessed. model right there. We're very blessed. That it, I mean, we started this company four and a half years ago, not really knowing where it was going to go. <laughs> For sure. You know, having a bit of a vision, uh, you know, kind of ham and eggers in terms of the business world. Um, <laughs> not really the most business savvy guys on the planet. But we knew we had some, some pretty good soft skills and some good, you know, relationships that we could build on. And just leverage that. And we've been having fun ever since. We always said, we're going to have fun with this, man. Like, we're going to laugh every day. It's the best. We're going to I mean, laugh every day. It, it's clear when, it, when I see you guys out on the job, right? You're, you're taking it seriously. You're working hard. But, like, you're enjoying it. Even if you got that mean mug demeanor on like you always do, Doug. You know, it's just, yeah, I well, can tell you're enjoying it. It's people, right? Yeah. Well, we love the people that we work with. They're Shane. usually at the food table. <laughs> You know a little bit about our business. You know the kind of events we work, and you can tell the people we work with, mm -hmm. it's just cool yeah. to be able to mm -hmm. hang out with these folks, For sure. offer a service, mm -hmm. and call some of these people. It's morphed into a friendship with some of these people, right? Because mm -hmm. we, we work with them so often, then it's become a friendship. We have to be careful, but we, you know, we, we have to be careful, but we're pretty good at compartmentalizing that when mm -hmm. the friendship stops and starts. We know why we're there, but... When, I, I think the best way to put it, when we're in the event, we're on. Yeah. When the event's starting to scale down or we're exiting out or anything like that, then the wall comes down. Yeah. But yet still, the person that we're with is comfortable enough they know they're getting to back home, mm -hmm. which is the priority one for them, and they're still in good hands. So. 
And we can laugh every day. Yeah. Because the people we work with have a great sense of humor as well, right? Mm-hmm. Like we, we can tell stories off the record that you'd be crying, you'd be laughing so hard, Shane. <coughs> Some of the people you know and love. Yeah, well, and, we'll, uh, we'll save that to yeah. the recordings. Because I don't want to put anyone on blast. No, no, no we won't do that. Um, I know, so I know it's getting late here. I know I promised you guys an hour, and it's been almost an hour and a half. So I just Thanks, want to, yeah, Chris's long stories. Yeah. I want to wrap up with just a couple more questions for each of you. Sure. Um, say you're both 18 again, but the year is 2021 still. Would you pursue the same path that you've gone down? Or were there, was there something else that you, that you always wish you had tried? Do you know what? There's a couple of decisions in my life when I was 18 that maybe I shouldn't have done that could have approved me later in life. Do I regret anything I've done? No. I think I, I find police work, law enforcement, an incredibly rewarding career. Mm-hmm. I, I may speak for Doug here, but we're incredibly proud of what we did. And those skills, that training, the events that we went through in our careers has led us to this today. So obviously we were doing something right when we were in law enforcement to get to be in this business now. I, I, I find it incredibly rewarding that these high profile people that we work with feel that comfortable around us that they just relax when they see us. Then we know we're doing the right thing. I'd do it all over again in a heartbeat, Shane. Great I mean, answer. It, it's just, you know. It's, also, you have a great answer too. It's the way I was wired. And, <laughs> Thanks uh, for the fill in. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> when I think back on a chain, I mean, we're so blessed to, to do what we did for so many years and have the experiences we did and the travel and the people and the challenges. I mean, like I said to you earlier, we, we lived what a lot of people read in novels, right? Mm-hmm. And, and, then, and that's so cool. Like, you, you can't take that for granted. You have to say to yourself, man, man, you've seen a couple of things in your day. You've met a couple of people in your day. You've had a couple of experiences in your day. And I don't know where else I could get that. I don't know what other vocation or profession I could I could replicate that with right now. I really can't. You only get one life, and there's only so much time, and and you can yeah. choose to squeeze as much out of it as you possibly can, or you can just kind of yeah. sit idly by and, and 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 to wrap it up from my perspective, the the, the best uh, derivative of all of this is I got to meet the funniest guy alive, Chris Hayden. I I often refer to Chris and introduce him as the funniest guy alive. <laughs> Uh, not really giving him any room to grow there, are you? True, but when, when I introduce Chris as the funniest guy alive, it puts a little bit of pressure on him. He's got to say something <laughs> funny, but people d- tend to agree with me because off the record, this guy is the most organic, natural comedian that I know that isn't on stage. 100%. You're the funniest guy alive, Chris. Okay, completely off topic, so screw you. <laughs> we started this business with a very simple plan. Every event that we wrap up, Doug and I in particular, when it's just him and I wrapping something up, we wrap it up like this with a fist bump. Just as simple as that. Every once in a while we actually connect. And we go, nice job. And that's how we wrap it up. I love it. Yeah. That's that's a signal to each other, job well done. We got through another one. And that's all we say to each other. That's cool. And I often say, Shane, anybody die in this gig? Nope, we're good. (laughs) Not that I know of. We're good. (laughs) Who's paying the bill? That's usually the last (laughs) thing. Um, and lastly, what are you guys most looking forward to coming up? Anything exciting happening? I mean, your <laughs> life is full of excitement. Any, you know, what in particular? Look, and I don't mean to be trying to, uh, but I'm looking forward to next week. I honestly am. Because we have that event next week with this person that we all know here in this room. Mm-hmm. But some of the alumni that worked with Kevin 
are coming in. Mm-hmm. And they've already reached out to us saying, come to town, boys. Where were we waiting yet? It's like so. a freaking reunion, right? It honestly is. Yeah. And we've been fortunate enough to be involved in some very high-profile <laughs> alumni reunion events. Mm-hmm. And like we, as we talked earlier, the inner circle. And it's pretty cool to be part of that circle. You guys are definitely on the bus. You are boys on the bus. Well, we've had sure. some of the alumni call us family, which yeah. is an incredibly That's big cool. compliment. Yeah. You know, without speaking out of school, Shane, we were fortunate enough to do the 84-85 reunion. That mm-hmm. was really cool for a lot of different reasons. Uh, we did the Rexall close, the Rogers opening. We did the, uh, the Glen, we call it the Glen Sather hanging. <laughs> Glen Sather hanging. Yeah, yeah, His yeah. banner at, at Rexall. <laughs> like some of these events are, uh, you know, they're, they're life-changing events because of the experiences that you enjoy and the people you meet, right? And I'm not speaking out of school here because some of this is pretty common knowledge. Mm-hmm. But, uh, so yeah, some of those events that are coming up. And uh, on a personal level, I'm just happy that the border is opening. Yes, exactly. I'm, I'm heading on the road here soon to California to hang out with some family. Awesome. And, uh, I'm going to get out of You driving down? I, I'm going to drive this time, yeah, down the coast. Yeah. It's a hell of a drive. So as you hear, so he's looking forward to that. Yeah. All work-related stuff falls to me. <laughs> but you'll switch at some point, I imagine. Well, no. Uh, so, And as we wrap up, let's give a real true bird's-eye view of my day. He will call me 12 to 18 <laughs> times a day. And if he's really bored on that drive... Even more. Yeah, Chris, <laughs> just going through Yosemite here. Don't care. Like, don't care. <laughs> Do you start leaving voicemails when he doesn't yeah. answer? <laughs> he goes through his Rolodex, and I'm always, oh, nobody picked up at 3 in the morning. Who am I going to call? Yeah. Ding! Well, you're pretty early, see, right? Like, yeah. that's pretty early in the I, list. I once went through the entire state of Utah on a call with him. <laughs> <laughs> that's no exaggeration. Come on, we're only a couple hours away. We're going for the record. That's no exaggeration. <laughs> just for your information, I didn't say a word. No. No. It's just, well, we were planning an event, a big event coming up, Shane, and I went through Utah talking to him on one call. <laughs> Did you hang up right? Okay, thanks, Chris. See ya. <laughs> no, but I remember my cell phone was really warm. Yeah. It was this. Well, you go ahead and take care of everything. I'm on holidays. Ding! That's how it went, so. I love it. We, we like to refer to Chris as the VP of everything, Shane. Yeah. And and then he always asks, what are you, Doug? And I'm the glue guy. I just keep it all together. Big glue guy. I'm yeah. the glue guy in this team. If you have, Okay, last one now. I'm, I'm full of shit, so this is the last are you, one. Are you honest about this? Uh, this will be the last one because it's a good one and it just came to mind. Uh, compare yourselves to guys in the room of that 80s Oilers team. Who are each of you? Good one. See? I told you it's good. Man, you're deep. You are deep, but... Paul Coffey. I'm trying to think who the funniest guy on the team was. Uh, McClellan. I was Kevin McClellan. <laughs> I had no idea he was that was, funny. Do you know how nervous he was? For the Toast of Town? Yeah. No. He came up to me 10 minutes before and he says, I am scared out of my wits. He was unbelievable. He, he says, I, I can't do this. I, I, I can't do this. He said, he'd be fine. He chain smoked two packs of cigarettes before he got on stage. I told him, I said, drop a couple of F-bombs, they're going to love you. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, he was gold. He was amazing. I don't think I'd ever seen him at an event until then. So he did an event up in Slave Lake as well, mm-hmm. shortly thereafter, and uh, he brought the house down again. Yeah. I mean, the funniest guy, a dark horse, the funniest guy alive, right? I remember him playing, and I remember flying around uh, Canada on some planes that the Oilers were on back in the day, and 
I never realized that Kevin was so funny. Like such a funny guy. What a gem. Oh yeah, he's one of the he's one of the best. Kevin McClellan is one of the best. All right, Coffee McClellan. Well, thank you guys so much for this. Really appreciate it. It was awesome to just kind of get to sit and relax with you guys off the job and, and kick it. So uh, thanks again for for being here for me. Thanks thank for having you, you know what? Truly, I started it this way. I'm going to wrap it this way. Never in my wildest dreams did I think Hayward Secure Drive would be on a podcast, but it's <laughs> it's pretty rewarding to be honest with you. So uh, you still got that radio voice, Chris. I did a lot of night shifts. <laughs> well, I'll post on the podcast. I'll post the link to the to the company and all Fair that perfect. stuff. So if anyone uh, of my listeners is is ready for security and, and driving, you guys are the ones. We, on average, we get somebody looking to work with us on a weekly basis. Perfect. Yeah, we're a one stop shop. Awesome. All right. Thanks again, guys. Thanks, Shane. Thank you, Shane. Thanks to everyone for listening to the podcast. Thank you, of course, to Chris and Doug. Absolute pleasure talking with you guys and look forward to seeing you at the next events. Uh, Listeners, keep an eye out for what's coming next for City Champions Podcast. Take care.